Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, disinformation and the coverage of the war in Ukraine. So we're entering week two of this awful war, and one of the areas that people are focusing on is the disinformation and propaganda effort that always accompanies any conflict. In this case, it's particularly intense because this is a war that is intensely focused on social media, on Twitter, on Telegram, on YouTube, and sort of raised the possibility of a lot of disinformation, especially coming from the Russian side, which has the interest in showing that its war is doing better than it actually is. What's interesting is that so far, the Russian propaganda effort hasn't worked so well, um, partly because the US flagged a lot of what they were gonna do at the beginning. But as the war grinds on, there is still a possibility of more of that to come. So how are we supposed to watch this? How are we supposed to read it with this in mind? I'm really happy to be joined by Jane Beninko. She's a senior research fellow in the Technology and Social Change Project at the Harvard Kennedy School Shorenstein Center and an expert on disinformation. Jane has been tracking disinformation around the Ukraine war. She's extremely close to this story. She was born in Kyiv. She has family who still live there. And I'm really happy to be joined by Jane today. Jane, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, thank you for having me. You were born in Kyiv. Uh, how long did you live there? Um, a part of my family and I moved uh, to Canada when I was 11 years old. Um, but I have pretty extensive family in Ukraine. Hmm. And uh, I've gone back every year since up until the pandemic. I want to talk to you about what you're hearing from them in a second, but I was so glad to read your piece about the live stream because um, I've been doing the same thing. <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Jane wrote a piece for um, The Atlantic about how she's glued to this live stream of Central Kiev um, as a kind of, almost kind of a salve to everything else that's going on. Um, are you still watching it? Um, I've had to turn it off. Um, the The idea of watching my favorite parts of Kiev being destroyed on a live stream mm -hmm. was kind of unbearable. Mm -hmm. Before that bombing started, it was a source of reassurance, right? That you could see yeah. things look to be relatively normal. Yeah, it, you know, I knew that things were not normal. Um, we've known that things were not normal since November. Um, uh, and of course, I, you know, read the news, I saw the satellite images, I was monitoring my Telegram and Twitter channels. And so I understood that, uh, you know, watching the sun come up over Kiev didn't actually mean that everything was okay. But, um, but, you know, it had this little magic for me um, where uh, the sun would come up over Independence Square and I would think, okay, one more day, we made it uh, without something horrible happening. Mm -hmm. um, but once the horrible thing happened, I had to turn it off. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your communication with your family there. Um, 
I want to be careful uh, about what I say uh, publicly about my communication with my family. Uh, but it's been on and off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's been uh, very difficult. It's been a very difficult week. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, I understand, but I'm sorry. Um, Thank you. And you've made it, I mean, how, given given your connection, your very deep connection to this place, do you find the work that you're doing um, around um, disinformation around this war to be uh, a source of something that that you that you can engage in as 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 doing something to be part of what's happening or or is it painful um i'm somewhere right in the middle of that venn diagram <laughs> um it's of, co- of course it's deeply painful um and of course the vicarious trauma continues to settle in um and of course it's impossible to divorce my emotions from trying to figure out what's happening on the ground, trying to sift accurate information from inaccurate information. But at the same time, I think any Ukrainian you will ask right now will tell you that it's our responsibility to get as much accurate information out of Ukraine as possible, um, because that accurate information is mobilizing the world. Um, It's mobilizing countries, it's mobilizing politicians, and it's leading to real political change, to sanctions that were unimaginable two weeks ago, right? Um, actions that were unimaginable two weeks ago. And so I understand that my voice is a drop in the bucket. Um, and of course, I'm in a safe place and uh, have the privilege of being able to do this without fearing for my life. But um you know, I hope, I hope it helps. You and your colleagues have, um, have started working on or have been working on a tracker that looks at um, how social media companies are responding to uh, disinformation. Um, You're looking at what they're taking down. You're looking at content moderation. Um, What do you, what, what sort of grade do you give those, those social media companies in this war so far? Yeah, that tracker that you're talking about has been uh, kept up by my colleagues, April Glaser and Jazila Salam. And they've been essentially looking at the various takedowns and moderation measures that social media platforms and also traditional television uh, providers have, um, have enacted against Russian propaganda. And uh, if you look at this tracker altogether, um, it, it's, a, it's a scattershot approach. Um, you know, the uh, pro-Russian propaganda TV channels like Russia T- Today, uh, known as RT now, and Sputnik have been banned in Europe, but not in North America, um, as one example of an inconsistency. And uh, at the same time, both Twitter and Facebook have said that they will downrank Russian propaganda um, disinformation, but they haven't removed it. 
Um, famous Russian propagandists continue to have a platform um, thanks to these social media companies. Um, and so, of course, uh, they are doing they are taking some action um, and it sort of comes in a uh, domino effect where if one platform takes actions, the rest do as well, uh, which is what we've seen over the years anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but there isn't, you know, a consensus from social media companies on how to react to this. And what what are they waiting for? Like, what it, what does it take um, to get them to move here? Is it is it a matter of pressure, public pressure? Um, what I mean, I know this is the story with them, you know, forever. Like, you know that that conflict after conflict and sort of um, disinformation episode after disinformation episode. They move slowly or not at all. Um, mm-hmm. But I would have just have thought that like given the worldwide attention on this particular war, they would have reacted differently. But is that you just, I I take it you think I'm naive there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. And I don't really know the answer of what it would take. Um, You know, it's, uh, it's a really difficult situation. Um, And the other part of it is that we don't really know what's happening behind the scenes. Uh-huh. These companies are not transparent with every removal that they do. Uh, you know, they don't announce every account that they suspect is a pro-Russian account that they have removed. Um, and uh, that's a problem as well, because if somebody did come across Russian disinformation, and I'm almost having a 2016 deja vu here saying this, but if somebody did come across Russian disinformation that was later removed or downranked, surely they should know about it, um, as well as the historical record. Um, we, without understanding in full the actions that these companies are taking, uh, we don't have a full comprehensive historical record of this moment. Um, looking at the um, propaganda efforts, uh, especially on the Russian side. Um, I mean, it seems like a lot of that was blunted uh, by um, the way the U.S. intelligence agencies sought to, like, get ahead of this stuff. At least that was my impression, you know, that they, they tried to sort of flag what you may see. Um, mm-hmm. And the Ukrainians did the same thing in, in the sense of, like, flagging what they expect to see from the Russians. Um Given that, I mean, what what is still getting through? And, and I mean, are you able to like look at what's making its way into Western media, um, sort of unflagged? Um, I'm just curious, what sort of what's what's squeaking through still? I assume it's a lot, but mm-hmm. do you have a sense of what those narratives are or specific examples? Yeah, there's definitely some pro-Russian propaganda that's seeping through. Um, And you're right to say that these uh, pre-bunking efforts, um, as we call them, have really undermined the ability for Russia to uh, essentially stage false flag operations. And not just from governments, but I should say from open source investigators 
uh, as well who dissect videos that Russia puts out. But the stuff that's getting through is um, actually a lot of it is recontextualized or decontextualized images and videos. Mm -hmm. um, so one example is a video of Russian paratroopers descending on Ukraine that turned yeah. out to have been from a military exercise, right? Yeah. Um, and when you dissect that piece of disinformation, you sort of begin to understand that uh, it was created to amplify panic um, and to distort um, the way that Russia is... Uh, uh, conducting its military operations. But a lot of the attempts at controlling the narratives have fallen completely flat. Yeah. You know, Russia's claims that they're not attacking civilian targets it just don't hold up in the face of evidence. Um, Russia's claims that they're there to uh, rescue Russian-speaking Ukrainians or whatever don't hold up to uh, evidence and Russia's claim of Ukraine being a Nazi country, um, of course, doesn't hold up to evidence. Um, so, so the main narratives, um, although we see them in some corners of the internet, um, they're not particularly pervasive. The one thing that I worry about um, that has been consistent and actually bridged uh, the political spectrum uh, divide in many ways is essentially blaming NATO for the war. Mm -hmm. Now, that is something that we saw a lot in the lead up to the escalation. Um, and some of it has really hung on. Um, essentially, the narrative there is that it's NATO that's causing this escalation. Um, NATO is using Ukraine as a buffer country because um, it wants to challenge Russia. But the reality is that NATO didn't make Putin bomb innocent civilians. Um, yeah. And so uh, on a larger scale, that narrative certainly has not taken hold. But in smaller corners um, of more extreme or anti-US commentators, uh, we do see that narrative spread. Yeah, I really worry at this point about... Um fake narratives around President Zelensky. I, mm. I read somewhere that, you know, there was concerns about deep, deep fakes of him. Um, but I think, you know, the country has so much, you know, the country and the world um, has so much invested in him. I really worry about that um, in terms of Russian disinformation. Yeah, Russia is really invested in undermining Zelensky. I think partially because they didn't expect for him to be such a central figure against whom not just Ukrainians, but the international community rallies, right? Um, his quote about, I don't need a ride, I need ammo is across every social media channel, right? There's some really weird trends, if I'm being honest, about like how attractive he is. That one's a strange one. Um, but his resilience um, in the face of the war has really become symbolic of Ukrainian resilience overall. And so yesterday there was a mass announcement uh, within Ukraine to be careful with um, trusting videos of Zelensky uh, that uh, essentially reverse his position. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so once again, we see Ukrainian authorities and Ukrainian media essentially pre-bunking what they think might be um, a uh, Russian disinformation narrative. Yeah, the Russian, um, partly because of the reasons that we've discussed, but the Russian disinformation effort seems so has seemed so inept. Um, yeah. Does that surprise you? No, you know, not particularly, um, because although Russian propaganda is pervasive, most of it is actually quite unsophisticated. Uh, we know this from reporting that Bellingcat has done, from mm. reporting that journalists all around the world have done, mm. right? Um, and what Russian propaganda relies on is uh, muddled waters, wedge issues, and sort of misunderstanding or a desire to not get too deep into a certain topic. Um, and here, Ukrainian voices have been so uh, rigorous at getting Ukrainian stories out, stories from people on the ground, filming evidence of war crimes, um, or I guess what now the international court is considering um, as investigating as war crimes, um, con- filming evidence of peaceful civilians getting bombed. Um, and also uh, the widespread Ukrainian humor, which I'm really glad the world is getting to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that in the face of all of that, Russian propaganda is just not enough. Mm. I mean, this is it's a kind of parallel issue to what your expertise is. But looking, what what is your what is your assessment of just the the, the media coverage in the U.S. Especially on TV, I don't know how much time you've had to watch, or whether you're just completely watching twenty four seven. But do you have a sense of um, what you think they're doing particularly well? Where do you think they're falling down? Yeah. So let me couch this answer by saying that my information environment right now is um, not focused on U.S. pundits. Uh-huh. Um, (laughs) I do watch a lot of on-the-ground reporting um, from U.S. and international media, which has been, I think, some of the best reporting we've ever seen. I think so, too. Um, We've been really critical, especially of, like, cable networks here. But I think the people on the ground they have there have been sort of astonishingly good. Yeah. Yeah. The glimpses that um, I do get of uh, U.S. coverage make me really wish for a more historic perspective Mm -hmm. um, on what's happening because um, I really fear that uh, this is presented as some sort of new war or new military action. Uh, When as a matter of fact, it's a war that has been going on for eight years. Mm -hmm. um, And this is just a very brutal recent escalation. Um, I'll leave it to war historians um, to break down the stages of war. But Ukraine's history is incredibly important here because Ukraine has been trying to free itself from Russian uh, grasp for, well, 30 years, but definitely more than 30 years uh, since its independence, right? Um, And so understanding that struggle is key to understanding the war. Um, And 
that's sort of the 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 primary reflection I have on again the largely limited uh, time I spend watching U.S. pundits talk about this. So, what do you what it, what is your information diet on this? Like, where do you go? What are you What are you reading? What are you watching? Um, I never turn off Telegram, um, uh-huh. which you know may surprise international audiences, but it's essentially like Twitter in Ukraine, yeah, uh, where both official uh, government channels and um, individual influencers and news media um, all essentially have their own timelines where they put out information. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been really critical because it allows you to understand what's happening neighborhood to neighborhood. And as someone who's really worried for her family, um, that's invaluable to me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also been watching uh, Ukrainian television. All of the uh, television channels in Ukraine banded together to provide 24-hour around-the-clock coverage of the war to Ukrainians. Um, and it's uh, it's incredible work. Um, they're doing a really incredible job. I also focus in the English language um, on outlets on the ground, like New Voice Ukraine and Kiev Independent, yeah. um, and image and video verification outlets like Bellingcat, Conflict Intelligence Team, as well as the Washington Post and New York Times uh, visual investigations teams. Mm-hmm. So my focus is largely on what's happening on the ground um, and as much as possible the information environment in Ukraine right now. So how do finally like pay, I don't know if the word is pace yourself or how do you is there a way to get through this? <laughs> give yourself a break or, or is it just twenty four seven all the time right now? Um, yeah, I mean, I wish I had you know a measured response to you to say I give myself breaks and I take care of my own mental health and I remember to do my laundry, <laughs> um, but. I don't, um, because because the feeling of missing something really important um, doesn't leave you. Um, the feeling of fear for your loved ones doesn't leave you, um, and you can't you can't distract yourself from that. Um, and so doing your best to understand what's happening um, is, I think, for me, um, I don't know about others, but for me, um, the really like the only thing I can do right now. Yeah. Well, Jane, it was great to talk to you. I wish you and your family all the best. I know it's hard, but um, thanks for your work you're doing for the rest of us on this story. Thank you for having me, and thank you for covering this. So you can follow CJR's ongoing coverage of the war at CJR.org, read our daily email newsletter, The Media Today, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. See you next time.